Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. So we'll get right into these questions. Dr. Karen, do you want to start with the first one that you kind of see your clients come into you about? (laughs) Yes. Well, this is something that comes up for parents who call the office and who have not yet gone through the assessment process. Does my child need a diagnosis to get accommodations or modifications at school? So they see their child struggling. They think they would, they need some extra support, but they don't have a formal diagnosis. So short answer, no. You do not. The legal standard is that there is a suspicion Mm -hmm. of a disabling condition, which does not mean a diagnosis. And the suspicion can come from a parent, from a soccer coach, from a doctor, from a teacher. It can come from the janitor. Anyone who knows the child, who feels that there is something going on that is impacting learning or impacting access to a learning environment. Now, if you have a diagnosis, it certainly provides additional information, but it's not necessary. And that's really good to know. Yeah. And I think, you know, even when we're talking about, so, so Amanda kind of gave the perspective of IEPs and and even with 504s, right? Um, We do want to see the child is suffering from a disability that like, severely hinders their ability Mm -hmm. to carry out essential life activities, right? And so is that walking, is that seeing, is that reading? And I think that with 504s, the push is get us a diagnosis, right? But 504 plans can actually do evaluations as well. And if there is that disability that is found in the district's own assessments, you don't necessarily have to cough up an ADHD diagnosis, an autism diagnosis, et cetera. Right. But, and it is important to, for parents to know that they just can't walk into the school and say, I know that my child needs extra time and they will be guaranteed that accommodation. There has to be some kind of an assessment process, even if it's not, doesn't result in a diagnosis. Yes. Correct. And now when parents are asking for an assessment or they think that their child needs help, there's no requirement that they use specific words to say, Mm -hmm. I believe my child has a disabling condition that impacts learning. I want an assessment to determine if they're eligible to receive services. They don't have to do that. They can simply go to the school and say, look, I'm concerned about X, Y, and Z. The obligation then shifts to the school district, to whoever that person is, that parent is talking to, to help them or inform them about putting it in writing to make the request for an assessment. So essentially, You have a conversation with a teacher and a parent and the parent is saying, you know, I'm really concerned that my child is just not understanding what they're reading. And I think it's impacting how I just don't think that they're understanding. Right. The teacher should then say, you know, I'm not seeing it or, yeah, you know what? I'm seeing it. You know what? Let's put this request. What we would do is do an assessment to see if your child would be eligible for support. Let's put down this request for an assessment and let's bring it to the principal. Let's send it to the administrator. So it's the school's obligation to inform the family what you're asking for is support that could be provided through an IEP or a 504 plan. And in order to get there, we need to do assessments first. 
Right. And this leads me to a couple of questions because this has come up for parents as well. Another question that parents ask is that if the teacher says my child is fine, and I've heard this over and over again, where parents have gone to the Mm -hmm. teacher first Mm -hmm. as the frontline person and said, you know, it's taking my kid three hours to do homework. And you said it should take 30 minutes. He's really struggling. And the teacher says, he's fine. A lot of kids are behind. Mm -hmm. A lot of kids are struggling this year. He's a boy. He'll catch up. Don't worry about it. And discourage the assessment. What do parents, what should parents do? Because this has come up with so many parents, I can't tell you more than I wish. Uh, Yeah. Follow your gut, put the request in writing and submit it. Because at the end of the day, you're going to be left in this limbo where you are putting your faith that the, what the teacher is saying is accurate, but you know, deep down because Mm -hmm. you're seeing the homework come through, you're seeing the struggle and let's just find out. Let's just do the assessment process and let's find out. It's not about teacher, you were right or you were wrong or I was right or I was wrong. It's about getting more information. Why is getting more information discouraged? It should not be. The parent is an equal participant under the federal law for the Individuals Disability Education Act. And as soon as you start those assess that assessment process, you know, that applies to you, right? Because you are now in this process of finding out whether or not your child requires special education services to access their education. And their teacher, no single person at the district has the ability to say your child will not qualify until Mm -hmm. an assessment is done. And in fact, no single person has the ability to make that determination on their own ever, even after an assessment is done. Absolutely. That threshold for whether assessments should be done is so low. It's a suspicion by anybody that something is impacting learning because that's where we get the more information is through the assessments. And I want to point out that not only do we see what you just mentioned, that the teacher says, I don't think we need it, But we also see teams delay further by saying, we're going to do a student success team meeting or an Mm -hmm. SST, or we're going to do a 504 meeting. Both of these are delay tactics that are not supported by the law. There is actually nothing in the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act that allows for a district to do an SST meeting. Now, these are SST meetings is a tool that school districts have come up with as a way to try to triage and determine students that might need more support before going through an IEP process. And while in some cases that could be appropriate if we're acting very, very early or we're within that 15 days of the parent asking for an assessment, most of the time that is actually not appropriate because what happens is we see a student success team meeting The team at that meeting says, well, we're going to provide these accommodations and supports and let's see how it goes. That's not appropriate. If there is a suspicion and the family thinks that an assessment is necessary, an assessment needs to happen. If you want to do accommodations through an SST in the meantime, that's fine, Mm -hmm. but it needs to be simultaneously. And I think that's what gets confused is that a lot of districts say, well, we have this policy that we do this SST Mm -hmm. and families think that that's what the law requires and it doesn't. And I just think that the suspicion factor is so important. I don't think Mm -hmm. many parents realize that that is the threshold because oftentimes there's a wait and see approach. There's a suspicion Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. then there's, well, let's just wait and see. Or 
you know, your child is struggling with reading, you know, I'll meet with them and read over the homework with them, make sure that they can read it correctly. We'll read over it a couple times to become, become familiar with the text. But if that's dyslexia, that's not an intervention for dyslexia. Right. And so not. that's where the assessment is so important. And not only that, but you could even have, say, a diagnosis of ADHD and the whole team could have the assumption that child's difficulty with completing homework and sitting for a long period of time is a result of that ADHD. And so putting accommodations in place, we know what we've done for other ADHD kids. And so we're just going to do it. But that assumption sometimes can be wrong. We see a lot of kiddos who have who may have symptoms of ADHD, but also sensory processing disorder, also auditory or visual processing disorders or something else entirely that is impacting a language processing difficulty. So if we don't do these assessments, we're not really getting to that root because, and that's where I think sometimes when pediatricians make diagnosis, it can murky the water with IEPs. And I'm not saying Mm. doctors shouldn't Mm. make diagnosis, Mm -hmm. they should, but a team sees that diagnosis and they go down, they have blinders on and they Mm -hmm. go down this rabbit hole of, well, this is what's impacting behavior. And so this is what we're going to do without thinking, maybe there's two or three other things that are also impacting. Right. And those three things can interact to present very differently Uh because a child with ADHD Mm -hmm. And dyslexia is going to present very differently than a child with ADHD, dyslexia, and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so the support is going to be very different in terms of what is needed. Yeah. And what I've seen too often is the team says, there's a diagnosis of ADHD, so we're going to put in place these accommodations. Mm -hmm. Fast forward a month, they don't work. And the Mm -hmm. team says, maybe you should consider medication. Mm -hmm. But we haven't considered these other impacts. Mm -hmm. And medication is not the answer in many cases because we're not actually solving the problem because it's not actually attention alone. It is these other, these mm-hmm. other disabling conditions. So, you know, that's why assessments are so important because without those assessments, we don't know. No one knows. The doctor doesn't know. The teacher doesn't know. The parent doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And if we just have an ADHD diagnosis and we went in just looking for ADHD, we're probably missing something else because 30 to 50% of kids with ADHD have another diagnosis or another processing Mm. issue that's Mm -hmm. impacting their functioning. Mm -hmm. Yes. So Mm -hmm. question, parents will ask, you know, I went through the IEP process. They did an Mm -hmm. assessment. The Mm -hmm. school says, you know, they're not having significant difficulty. It's not enough to need special educational support. If parents do not agree with the school's assessment results Mm -hmm. and really believe, like you said before, in their gut that something else is going on, they see their kids struggling, they believe that something was missed, Mm -hmm. what are their options? So one of the options outright is to have the parent request what's called an independent educational <laughs> evaluation, yes. um, an IEE. We, we deal with a lot of acronyms, so I was trying to spell it out in my head. The IEE is just what it is, right? We are going to get an outside person to conduct evaluations. So this is not a parent that disagrees that the eligibility category should be autism instead of other health impairment. We've seen this come through a lot. And what parents need to understand is that as soon as you are able to get one of those eligibility categories and and qualify, for instance, 
once you get through that door, there's 13 eligibility categories. Once you get through one of those doors, whatever services your child needs will be provided or should be provided. You do not have to have autism to get speech and language Mm -hmm. services. You don't need to have any of that. But we see that a lot where we go, hey, why did you disagree with these evaluations? Well, they had the wrong eligibility category. And Mm -hmm. it's like, you're you're focusing, you're hyper-focusing on the wrong thing. So Mm -hmm. the parent that is going to be requesting an IEE is that parent that is just like, no, something's wrong. And you guys are saying they don't qualify at all. And I believe Mm -hmm based on their ADHD, because we see this a lot, they'll want to give you a 504. And a 504, kind of how I'd said at the top, there is a a physical or mental condition, right, that substantially limits a major life activity. The quickest example is that the child is in a wheelchair, the school has no wheelchair ramps. And so Mm -hmm. that is a violation under 504, right, this kind of access to it, right? But it can also be applicable to kiddos with ADHD and things like that. But when you're looking at an IEP and what it will provide, there are these related services. So your child with ADHD that is taking three hours to do homework may not just need accommodations of Mm -hmm. only doing the even math problems. They may need the teacher to reteach the concept because Mm -hmm. they are not grasping it for whatever reason, right? Whether it be processing, whether it be the attentional, whether it be an impulsivity that is keeping them from actually retaining the information. So you would say, I would like an independent educational evaluation, and the district has a couple of avenues that they can do with mm-hmm. that. They can grant it to you outright and say, okay, we will fund, you know, it's public funding. We will pay for an independent person to do this evaluation. And, you know, we'll have an IEP meeting after we'll discuss. A district can disagree, but when they disagree to providing that funding for an independent evaluation, they must sue the parent. And they must sue the parent within a reasonable amount of time. The last um, case that kind of actually the only case that had discussed this in California, the judge had determined, I think it was like 72 days. Don't quote me on that, but it was Mm. a specific amount of days that was too much. Right. So we know 72 days is too long a time for the district to sue a parent to say, hey, judge. We did the evaluations appropriately. We don't believe that anybody else could get a different result. So, you know, please indicate that we don't have to pay for this, right? Mm. If that happens, a parent can also pay for that evaluation out of pocket and hold an IEP meeting and see if the IEP team will consider it. Even Mm -hmm. if the district pays for the independent educational evaluation, which I'm sure you've seen, they don't have to listen. Right. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. and so even though it is an option, again, more data is beneficial. So if you Mm -hmm. can get the district to do it, do it right. If the district decides they're going to sue you, they're going to sue you, or you just kind of wait and see, right. And you wait and see, and maybe something new happens in a few months, a new behavior is happening. Right. And then you Mm -hmm. can kind of start the process over again. That latter option is tough. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't want to discourage parents from requesting IEEs because yeah. as a practical matter, while school districts are required to either fund or file for due process or sue the family, there's kind of what usually happens is the district has to respond in 15 days. That response is either yes, we fund it or we're going to file. 
practically speaking, most districts will send a prior written notice within those 15 days saying, we're not going to offer it, the IEE and here's why. So we are required by law to file for due process. If you don't withdraw this request, we will mm-hmm. file. So when you get that letter, you as a parent have the ability to say, okay, is it worth fighting? Do I want to withdraw? So, and you have the ability as a parent to say, okay, I withdraw my request and then they can't sue you. So, because I know parents come to us all the time and are like, I'm really worried. I don't want them to sue us. So there's kind of like no harm in asking for the IEE because Mm -hmm. they'll either ask it, but they'll either give it to you or they're going to say they're going to sue. But the minute you withdraw the request, then the lawsuit goes away. So if you're like, there's no way I can defend this lawsuit, whatnot, I don't want to have to deal with this. There's always that option there. So, you know, I don't want parents to think that there's like no backing out. You can still go that route. And it might be an opportunity, right, to get the district's attention again, right? And have Mm -hmm. a mediation, have the court involved and, and really try to resolve the issue in a different matter, right? Outside of the IEP, that is obviously also a possibility when the the district sues you. And for those parents who, you know, were denied services because they, the district said their child does not qualify for services and they go and get their own private assessment without asking for an IEE, Mm -hmm. or maybe they asked and it was denied and they chose to pursue a private assessment. If that assessment then shows Yes, your child has a learning disability. Yes, your child needs accommodations, modifications, treatment. Do they then go back and request another IEP with this data? What is the next step in that process? Yes. So if you're going to get your own private evaluation, you are entitled to request reimbursement for that evaluation. And if you get services privately as a result of those recommendations, mm-hmm. you are entitled to request reimbursement for that as well. But mm-hmm. you need to present that report and those findings to the district through an IEP meeting where you're essentially asking the district to kind of reconsider eligibility mm-hmm. based on the private evaluation. And Like Vicki said before, they're not required to just follow the recommendations of the IE. Mm -hmm. They are required to consider it. So you present it to the team. The team is required to review it and discuss those recommendations. Now, a lot of times the team will meet and discuss it. Sometimes they say, you know what? This independent assessment looked at areas we didn't. So we'd Mm -hmm. like to reassess. We'd like to add areas. And that's okay. They're allowed to do that because Mm -hmm. any area that the district hasn't assessed before, they have a right to assess. Mm -hmm. And I say that's where we get a lot of these issues with eligibility Mm -hmm. and that the district's assessment initially is not comprehensive enough. Yes. And so the independent assessment is much more thorough. And that's where we're seeing the discrepancy. It's not that oh, we both did the Woodcock-Johnson and they're completely different scores. It's no, the district didn't take into consideration auditory, visual, sensory processing, something along those lines. And so we didn't get the full picture. So Mm -hmm. now when I said that you're entitled to get reimbursement for these things, unfortunately, it's not a automatic. It's not like, oh, well, this independent assessment showed us something the district assessment didn't. You automatically get it you unfortunately do have to file for due process or some type of alternative dispute resolution process with the district to essentially negotiate to say, you know, your, your claim would be you didn't appropriately assess because you missed these areas. 
or your analysis and conclusion and recommendations weren't off. They weren't Mm -hmm. based on a full picture of my child. And so as a result, you did not find my child eligible. You did not offer them appropriate services. Therefore, we are entitled to to reimbursement. And so under the law, if you did file a claim, you would be asserting that the district made a violation. What Mm -hmm. you went and got was appropriate. So that assessor was qualified, that assessment would be deemed appropriate. And any services you Mm -hmm. sought as a result of those recommendations were appropriate. Your child made progress. You can then seek reimbursement of those funds. And, And oftentimes, if you get to that point, you might be able to negotiate, look, we have all this proof that my child needs an IEP. What we'd really like is to get an IEP. And your right. negotiation might be, mm-hmm. we're entitled to reimbursement of all these things. We're also entitled to eligibility. Let's see what we can come to a compromise on. And I think, you know, to back up a bit as well, we're talking about in the context that the district assess first, if a mm-hmm. parent just happened to have gotten an independent person involved prior, you know, maybe it's one of Mm -hmm. your clients that you've been seeing for a while, you did the evaluation, they can take that to the district to request initial evaluations. Because again, the district has, you know, a right to take a, a bite of that apple as well, right? So even if you have a private evaluation beforehand, more likely than not, you may be able to get that reimbursed once your student qualifies, if you file a complaint to show that the district violated their child find obligation, which just basically means that the district should always be on the lookout and finding these children that may require special education. And like I said, more often than not, you get in that evaluation in fifth grade, there was things years before that the district had a reasonable suspicion, not even reasonable, Mm -hmm. had a suspicion that there was a disability that affected the child access to the curriculum. So I wanted to throw that out there too, because you don't have to have the assessments first before doing the private ones. And can I just say that the information that you both are sharing, most parents do not have access to. Right. There's not a place where they can go when your child begins school. They Mm -hmm. do the kindergarten orientation, Mm -hmm. but there's not... If your child is struggling, here are the steps to follow. Yeah. Yeah. And and parents can't find the information. They don't know what their rights are. That is one of my biggest frustrations. And it's just when parents get a notice, for example, that we are going Mm -hmm. to sue you because we Mm -hmm. don't agree. Mm -hmm. Then Mm -hmm. for some parents that not knowing what their rights are, not understanding Mm -hmm. what this means, they back off and then their kids don't get the support that they actually do need. And that is incredibly frustrating to me and to so many of the parents that I work with. I mean, honestly, it's one of the reasons why we have this nonprofit and why we have this podcast, right? And why we love to collaborate with you because you see so many individuals that we don't get a guidebook on how to be parents, just period, right? And then what about the guidebook for a parent with a child with unique learning needs, right? Like nobody has that. And so our podcast is really to start those conversations, try to make people aware where. And that's what we loved about like this idea, which I think we'll, we'll have to continue doing this at least yes. quarterly. Because there's so many more questions. <laughs> there's like, so many yeah. more questions. Yeah. You know, and, and I wanted to kind of bring it back as well. You know, we are talking about the public school system. There are a lot of families that go to private schools and that child may be in private school their entire life. The parent may have just gotten, you know, really frustrated and pulled their child out. 
the private schools are not federally funded. So the federal law and the state laws apply to those federally funded schools that can include charter schools and obviously public schools. So, you know, if a religious school or an otherwise private school is not providing individualized education programs, IEPs, they are not obligated to. But what we have seen, especially under this idea that we were going to have vouchers under the former um, education secretary, federal education secretary, which was an awful idea. We had seen a lot of private schools try to accommodate children with special needs. So they kind of will mimic IEPs, but there is no obligation that they need to. They're private, right? So I wanted to rule book, so to speak. But keep in mind that if your child does attend a private or parochial school, you still are entitled to go to the local school, public school district where you live, ask for an assessment and ask for an IEP. If the team makes a recommendation for an IEP, you then have kind of a choice whether you're going to take that IEP, go back to your private school and say, look, these are the things that I think my child needs. You could choose to go to the public school and say, I want to accept these services. And the third kind of option is is kind of a hybrid. Mm -hmm. If the team is making a recommendation for accommodations in the classroom, but also related services, so speech Mm -hmm. and OT outside the classroom, Mm -hmm. you do have a right to say, you know, I'm going to continue to privately place, but I, I would like to, you know, access these related services, speech, OT, especially for like our younger kiddos, those under the age of six, where many times they're attending a private preschool or a private mm-hmm. program, and they're not obligated to attend a public school yet. Here in the state of California, you're required to go to school when you turn six. Other states are different. So up until that age, you're allowed to go to a private school and still get, but even if you're like in fifth grade, you can still seek these related services. And we could do a whole podcast on like the interchange of that. There's a lot of details, but just know that that is an option. And I think that's important because I think there are many parents that I have worked with who don't know that that's an option because they feel like because they chose an independent school, they've given up their rights to seek an IEP and services through their school district. No. And in fact, when Vicki mentioned the child find obligation before, that obligation extends to children in private school. Um, Each school district is required to have a child find policy on how they essentially identify and find students that live within their district who might require support. Now, it doesn't require the school district to go, you know, knock on every door within, you know, their geographic area and say, hey, I noticed your kid isn't in our school. You know, hey, do you need an IEP? But if they know in some way or form, if they have some kind of policy where they know that there's a child living within their district who doesn't attend their school, who is requiring support, however that may be, they do have an obligation to let the family know, hey, we can do an assessment and we can, you know, see if there's something that is we can be providing. And sometimes the way that works is so like in California, we have regional centers that support students with disabilities across the state. And those regional centers, most of the time do referrals to the school district, whether the child is enrolled in that public school or not, to say, hey, this is a child with a disability living within your district. And in those cases, that triggers that child find obligation. If a parent goes to the district office and says, hey, you know, my kid's enrolled, but I wanted to find out more information. If they, you know, give information about their child having a disability, that triggers an obligation. So 
each district will have their own like policy on like how they identify these students, but right. there must be a policy in place. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I know that we're running out of time, but I do have an intervention question. Mm-hmm. And this comes up quite a bit. When they, I'm just thinking a parent who's gone through the IEP process, mm-hmm. their child clearly needs services. I'm going to use dyslexia as an example, or they, as mm-hmm. they call it, a specific learning disability mm-hmm. in reading. We know the science behind what works for kids with dyslexia and what does not work. Mm-hmm. If the school is recommending support that is not evidence-based, can the parents push back and to ensure that their child is getting an evidence-based intervention? And what does that process look like? That's a great question and, and really the bane of our existence and, and <laughs> why we still have jobs. So when we're looking at what an IEP needs to provide, it needs to provide a free and appropriate public education. I think we all know free to the parent, it means that it's publicly funded. Public education, we all we just discussed that. Inappropriate. Mm-hmm. What is appropriate? It's an individualized education program. So oftentimes districts will buy these research-based intervention, reading interventions. I mean, they may not necessarily be evidence-based. And we know a lot of parents in recent years, especially in California, the dyslexia parents were really pushing for districts to provide like certain types of, you know, like Horton Gillingham, like that's Mm -hmm. the Cadillac, right? What the law that actually passed down said was that, you know, they had a a more robust kind of law, but then the the one that actually passed was just like, hey, there is a guide that some districts can use to purchase these types of reading interventions. But what a lot of parents thought was that, well, we get evidence-based. That's Mm -hmm. just the automatic. And that's not what the law had said. Mm-hmm. If your child requires an evidence-based reading program, then that is what should be provided to your child. The problem is, is there's so many of these reading intervention programs that the districts will say, okay, this is what we believe that your child needs for mm-hmm. this amount of time. And you already know it's not going to work, mm-hmm. but we need the evidence to show that, right? Right. So, you know, do you already have intervention that is already being provided? That may be a way, right? Are we going to get this started, but we are going to agree that it's not appropriate for X, Y, and Z reasons? We we have to be specific, right? We can't Mm -hmm. just, we cannot just demand the Cadillac version of a reading program because, you know, whoever promised that it would work would work, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) We we want to go by the data. And that's what the IEP is supposed to do, right? It is supposed to be collecting this information because if it's not working, we need to change it. Right. And we sometimes see younger kiddos get the diagnosis of dyslexia outside of the school setting, obviously, because school psychologists cannot diagnose. And maybe they're still in the process of learning to read in the early elementary Mm -hmm. years. And the family gets a recommendation, they should use Orton Gillingham, or they should use X, Y, and Z program. Mm -hmm. And they go to the school district expecting that. And the Mm -hmm. child isn't, while they may need it to access their curriculum, they're still in the process of learning to read. So they're not like, it's not like they're in seventh grade at a first Mm -hmm. grade Right. Right. And so at that point, the school team has a right to pick the intervention that they feel, the methodology that they feel is appropriate for that classroom. And it is unfortunate that we kind of need the program that they pick not to work, like Vicky was alluding to, mm-hmm. that the child falls behind before we can say, we tried it your way, it doesn't work, now try it our way. 
you might see teams like I had a case a couple of years ago where we were dealing with a second grader who was diagnosed with dyslexia and recommended a certain program. And we went to the team and we said, we really feel that this is the intervention program that would work. The program you're recommending really isn't evidence-based. Mm-hmm. And we were able to convince the team, the district, because it was a smaller district to try it. And what mm-hmm. they did was they said, okay, we're willing to try this program as a trial basis with the RSP kids or the kids in resource mm-hmm. within this school in this grade. So it was like mm-hmm. all second graders in RSP at this school started using this program. They got trained on it. And when they saw the benefits of it, then they said, okay, now we're going to implement this as our like reading mm-hmm. adventure program. Mm-hmm. But it took a special team of administrators who understood the benefits of this type of program, because not only would it benefit this one child and the other kids in RSP, but it was a type of intervention program that would help every kid. And so it was like, why have three different intervention programs for different levels of students? Why not just have the better program, so to speak, for every kid? And you're catching a lot of students before they fall behind. So you know, that is something that we empower parents to try. There's no mm-hmm. harm in trying. There's no harm in going to your school board and saying, hey, you guys use this program. Do you know that it's not evidence-based? Here mm-hmm. are three other programs. We'd love you to, tr-. you know, there's power to that. Having mm-hmm. other parents hear that. Absolutely. I think that's just the biggest takeaway is just try. <laughs> like it, it just, you know, I think that is what we try to empower parents. Absolutely. With. And Mm -hmm. I think, again, you're empowering parents and you're equipping them with knowledge Mm -hmm. and that is powerful. And then when you get those administrators and those educators who are willing to try Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, those are the gold standard for me. I'm just like these, Mm -hmm. I wish you were, you know, on the team of every child that I work with, because these are the parent, the teachers and the administrators who go to bat and will Mm -hmm. do whatever they need to Mm -hmm. do to make this child succeed. And like you said, because they know that if they're, trying it with this child and it works, then it's going to be something that they can use with other kids who have similar struggles. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're, we're going to have to do another one of these. Dr. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for answering these questions, because like I said, these are questions that come up often. You know, I try to stay in my lane. I'm a neuropsychologist. Mm-hmm. I do assessments. Mm-hmm. I can talk to you about mm-hmm. what it is your child is struggling with, why they're struggling and what will help. But in terms of the legal aspect, you know, I need you both. Yeah, <laughs> I need you no, both to clarify. Ab- and that's absolutely. why I'm so glad that you're answering these questions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the next episodes, and maybe we're going to give you guys a little preview of, is kind of talking about practical tips and tricks from both of our perspectives, right? Of what a parent can do from that medical kind of perspective. And then what we would say, kind of delving in deeper, kind of give you guys yeah. those solutions. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Thank you again. 